So you just came back from Armenia, correct? That's right, yeah. How was it? Amazing. I've never been before. I've spent a lot of time in Georgia, but never made the trip across the border before and had had a lovely time, met some really like very sweet people, um, mm -hmm. really beautiful countries, such different landscapes than I've been familiar with across the border in Georgia. And obviously the, the big news about the invasion of Nagorno-Karabakh kicked off. It was actually the day we left. So things were a little calmer then there than mm -hmm. they are now, but the country's been under a, a great deal of of stress for a for a very long time. Yeah, it's all over news now. Yeah, of course. Yeah. So it's. Uh, did you feel it anything before, or it was just kind of unexpected? You know, you know. Sometimes you get the sense that there is, like with the invasion of Ukraine, definitely there was the kind of the, the, the feeling, also the media, that the leaders going to Moscow and, you know, it's kind of, you could sense that something is coming. Was it anything like that in when you were there? Not, I mean, certainly not in the level of discussion in the international media, or like there was with the Ukraine situation, but this was not, you know, a totally out of the blue situation. I mean, it was fairly inevitable that something would happen. I mean, it didn't have to be this particular outcome um mm. but tensions had been high for for many many years mm. um in that little armenian enclave surrounded by azerbaijan something was going to happen and right now azerbaijan is getting stronger and stronger armenia is geopolitically in the sphere of influence of russia russia is distracted and has other priorities so you know the circumstances the narrative makes sense um mm. yeah plus that uh I'm not mistaken, Azerbaijan has close ties with Turkey. Correct, yeah, very much so. Uh, I'm not sure about cultural link, but th there is something which th they share. So it yep. even makes more stronger in a sense. Absolutely, religious, political ties. I mean, Turkey has been, if not actively, then certainly tacitly um, allowing Azerbaijan to do what they've do for for many years. I mean, I'd been uh, years previously to to Baku and and she'd driven with friends through Azerbaijan and also had a wonderful time there. <laughs> like the people that I met in person, they were were also very nice. I mean, it's just something that I don't think I have the knowledge to to unravel. I mean, it was just such a you often arrive in a country fairly ignorant, and then when you arrive somewhere like Armenia. There is so much to learn and get your head around. I mean, I've started reading a lot about it since being mm -hmm. there and since leaving, but it's just such an intricate threat to to try and unravel. So I, I don't want to present myself as any form of <laughs> like particularly knowledgeable person on that on that region. But still, I mean, you have an opinion, and it's valuable. You know, any type of opinion is valuable as as long as there is an open dialogue. Because sometimes I, I, I kind of feel like you can go to a country and you could just meet the wrong people, have just the wrong experience, and then would completely misunderstand the country, you know? And the second time you come back, yeah. and you would be the complete opposite. So it's, I think that that plays as well, you know, like these things. Yeah, it's a good point. I think about that a lot with countries that I'm or a native in the language and deeply familiar with, like let's take Britain for example, and I imagine someone 
lands first time in the country, never been there before, and takes a, takes a train or takes a bus, who sits down next to you? It could be anyone. And if exactly. that per- depending on how that person is and what kind of conversation they strike up with you or if they ignore you or anything, if they're rude or polite, that could shape your entire experience of the country. And, and it, you're right in that it happens to all of us everywhere we go. It does. I think that's why... I don't know about you, but for me, that's why it's quite difficult to to kind of position myself in either broader debates, like, for example, environmental crisis, global warming, um, all this kind of, even movements, because if you read, you have to be even careful what you read. There's left, there is right, there is middle, there is anything in between, and that obviously shapes you know how how how, how you perceive it and then you know all all different puzzles you just trying to 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 kind of make that one piece which kind of would make sense i'm not saying that you would arrive to the truth you know or or but at least not being being biased by by by, by certain opinions or 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 you know, influence in, in a way and not thinking, but blindly following. I think that's the, the biggest danger. You know, that's where uh, it's sometimes it's difficult to have a a conversation with a person just because he he truly believes that let's say the, what the right wing says is true. Yeah, and and that's the thing about travel. I think when we travel, when we're overseas, we make ourselves more open-minded or at least more accommodating to, to the person who sits down next to you in the bus if they start giving a speech about some political idea that you back at home you would just you know tell them to bugger off there you're you're going to be polite and interesting because you're having a cultural experience of meeting someone with this totally different idea and, and i think that's something that we can take home with us as well i mean there are moral certainties that I am more convinced of than other things and not every belief that I had you know growing up in a I think fairly normal center-left environment in New Zealand normal of course is an operational term isn't it because what was normal for me is not normal for someone else but growing up what I had considered normal not all of those beliefs I still hold many of which many have I challenged many I've stuck with but those that I've stuck with I feel better about because at least I've looked at from different angles and have indulged in the possibility of changing so swimming in a ocean of different and conflicting ideas like that's that's part of the fun yeah it enriches you have you i feel it that way when i'm that's my perhaps i'm, I'm interested in, in philosophy and literature especially thought-provoking one which is kind of really challenges you and makes you feel uncomfortable if you know what i mean i mean you read and it kind of it's I'm not feeling good. It's just that's yeah. something in you and you start thinking and then what you just mentioned the word normal. I think uh you might end up finding out that there's no such thing as normal. It's just <laughs> a bit uh that's how we make our lives easier, you know. If you start questioning everything as Socrates, it's a bit the life might get a bit difficult. Yeah, no, of course, it's a, it's a subjective thing, and you can't constantly question everything. I think you have to make peace with certain fake realities, even though they're fake. <laughs> sort of just close yourselves in them. It's a matter of 
yeah, as you say, when you're reading something that challenges you, that provocative feeling. And I, I think there's a culture now, certainly in the West, where we're trained to run away from that feeling, that feeling of being challenged. We've considered that to be wrong. We want to read things that coddle us and make us feel secure in our convictions. And part of that's a political moment and part of that's human nature, but running towards that feeling of uncomfortableness, be it in a conversation or a podcast or a book or what have you, and think, okay, this is different. Let's find out where this comes from. You may not change your mind, but you might learn something. And this about thought-provoking, can it be applied to travel writing? Well, travel writing is simply... Uh, because I think sometimes when you hear travel writing, you think about some sort of guides or, or top 10 <laughs> most visit, like places to visit, which is also, you look into it, as, but can travel writing go beyond that? Can you, Obviously, the boundaries are, I guess, limitless and the, the genre merge with different ones. So just thought-provoking thought-provoking travel writing. Is that possible? Or you sometimes maybe even seek it? Or how does it work? Yeah, absolutely. And not all travel writing is remotely thought-provoking. As you said, there's so much that it's just, you know, the top 10 cocktail bars in Paris or five epic walks in the, the UK or something. Those pieces, those guide pieces, they have a role. They can be very useful. Like, I'm not knocking them, it's fine. But what I seek to do and my co-editor Jennifer and the community, we have it in trepid times. What we seek to do is this exact thought-provoking travel writing. So partly that is a traveler, one common story structure that we often find appealing is that a traveler has certain assumptions or beliefs about a place. They go there and they find those beliefs challenged. They engage mm -hmm. in a dialogue with people and they emerge still believing some things, but having thought differently and learned and challenged your perceptions and other things that's literally thought-provoking you've provoked thoughts that you would not otherwise have had and you've changed your mind about something and through travel literature you bring the reader on that on that journey with you so yeah the travel like narrative travel writing non-fiction reportage like that is the essence of thought-provoking and it's a genre that can be taken to extremely high heights there are some absolute masters of it over the last century beautiful really sounds beautiful and uh, it also echoes uh, personal growth because with this type of write uh, with this type of writing and reading you feel kind of well you, you learn new things but also learn new things about yourself about how you as you say you, that your mind can be changed so basically your opinion can be changed and nothing is uh, probably concrete in you in general. Um, so you're from New Zealand. How did you end up in Europe? Because it's quite a distance. Yeah, it's far. Like we, we New Zealanders, when we travel, we tend to travel for a long time because once we've made the effort to get um, anywhere, you know, it's nowhere is close enough worth going for a weekend. Even Australia is 2000 kilometers away so when I when I graduated university uh, a long time ago now I my first move was China and, and I ended up spending the better part of two years there and then after that um, Europe was just kind of you know the next leap on the journey and I've lived in various countries 
on the continent or nearby um, to like Georgia or on the edges of Europe or mm-hmm. uh, Spain, Hungary, Poland, uh, where I am now. I spend a lot of time in the UK as well. And it's like continental Europe, where I am now, is a place I've always felt very comfortable. As a Kiwi, it still blows my mind to be able to take a train or a bus to another country or to that the fact that from my little town in Poland, there is an airport where I could be in like 30 European countries for less than the price of a dinner out. Like it's just, you know, it's, I'm still, I don't think I'll ever get tired of this. It's still a novelty for me. It's a remarkable achievement. Don't you think like if you go back 100 years ago and travel from New Zealand to England, how long that would take? I don't know, not a month, half a year, I guess. Months, months, yeah. No, these we have on the New Zealand 50 cent coin, um, the boat, the endeavor that uh, Captain Cook first, um, they say discovered, it was obviously a nonsense term, but first, um, the first European to, I believe, set foot on New Zealand, that boat that brought it into the British mm-hmm. sphere for sure. Um, so it, now everything is so much closer. I mean, New Zealand still feels far, but. 24 to 36 hours is nowhere near six months and part of that is um that's what i talked about in my first book travel your way part of that is with travel being so much more accessible now it's mm-hmm. something that people could take for granted i mean you could go spend a weekend in warsaw or prague from london and not know a thing about the history or not really care where you are you're just there for the cheap beer and like I'm not mm-hmm. judging that. Like, I've been that guy. Um, every New Zealander has. But I also think <laughs> that with this accessibility, like remind, reminding ourselves to take it seriously, to read a book or two about the place, to at least learn how to say hello and thank you uh, mm-hmm. in the local language. Like, that's that's something. And then you, you find your, yourself enjoying your time there a lot more as a result of that. You know, the people, how they react if you say, in their language, just hello, how are you, or, or, or goodbye. You can already see in their faces, they're like, because you're showing you take an effort. Yeah, you're not 100%. just You're not just there, as you said, like, okay, there's this kind of tourism and people travel like that, and we're not judging them here. We're just discussing it. But there is where you just simply book a hotel and you go and you spend five days in front of the pool with an open bar, everything included. And it's fine, you know, it's fine. But I completely agree with you. If you if you travel to other countries, I mean, there's... And there's, a, I think there is a bit of danger with globalization that the countries are becoming uh, familiar. At least that's how I feel slightly, especially when, while traveling across Europe, because we all go for the old towns. Why we go for the old towns, historical places? Because they have that uniqueness. Although the architecture might be somehow, let's say, uh, some uh, well-off person in the 19th century wanted to build a villa in Latvia and he just basically hired an Italian architect. So obviously there will be some relations. But still with some uh, local touch-ups. But when you look at the modern architecture, I'm not an expert, I might be wrong, but for me, it's kind of, in a way, same metal and glass. 
you know and, and in in that way i think that's why uh, we don't you think that with the globalization and with this accessibility to all the places we're at the same time losing uh, what makes countries unique in a way yeah i i mean i think like i'm also not uh i can't speak intelligently about why there is this homogeneity in modern architecture but there is something about rationality that is reigning right now i mean i assume that a steel and glass skyscraper is much more economical to create on mass from prefabricated slices and blocks than some of the absolutely crazy buildings that you have in the medieval centers of old cities and rationality is highly compelling um but it is not beautiful that there's a two different sometimes even mutually exclusive goals so i think there are two things there as a one who travels who explores one is to you know to recognize as you pointed out what it is that we are compelled to see that uniqueness that history and what it is that we may be losing so that we can cherish that so that we can mm -hmm. nurture it but the other is also to see the world as it is like mm -hmm. when you're traveling and you see these glass monstrosities and you see i was in kutaisi georgia a couple of days ago and there's a massive mcdonald's right in the old square by the fountain like you don't travel around the world to see mcdonald's but it's kind of interesting and you know what there it was full of young people drinking coffees and working on laptops and looking happy and this is what i like to do too why should i begrudge them that yeah i agree i agree i agree that changes are inevitable sometimes what i don't with what i disagree is that sometimes these changes come at the expense of the historical sites or buildings being demolished just for service so i'm giving a bribe or 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 you know kind of uh, going around it and then there is something which doesn't fit there completely is out of the picture i mean perhaps that mcdonald fits in that square i'm not sure but you know you you might make the the facade like really blending or merging with the color i mean there are ways architectural ways design ways where you can really blend it like in malta they have this uh law i think it's a law now they have to maintain the facade of the old building of the historical building so basically the inside can be demolished completely but at least the facade you know because otherwise there is a i mean you're losing authenticity and and malta highly relies on tourism it's one of the one of the biggest income they receive yeah and then so I might almost challenge the idea of authenticity there. I mean, is authenticity a contrived and deliberate attempt by a government to appeal to a tourist crowd? Or is it people doing what they need to do in order to survive? I mean, Malta's stunningly beautiful. I was there a couple of years ago. Um, so I'm very, as a visitor, I'm very happy that that law mm -hmm. is in place. As a local, I assume I would feel the same way. Um, maybe i would prefer to have a cheaper house I, i'm not familiar with the economics there but one thing like that we have uh in poland that exists throughout the 
uh, former Eastern Bloc and former Soviet Union um, countries. I assume you have in Lithuania two of these. The post word is a shedle, these housing blocks, these big apartment buildings that are just copy-paste, copy-paste, copy-paste. Yeah. And yeah. some of them are really like, I love going through walks throughout them. This is something my wife and I do on weekends sometimes. And they're they're not beautiful in the way that Malta is beautiful or that the old square of a Polish city is beautiful, but there's something about them. They have an aesthetic or a vibe. It's hard to put into mm -hmm. words. And they were extraordinarily pragmatic. I mean, the, when people were moved into them, they were they were warm in the winter, they were cool in summer, they had hot running water, they had indoor plumbing, you know, perfectly functional kitchens, very efficient and very cost effective. So there was something here that was kind of modern, that was rational. And that in a strange sense is kind of beautiful as well. I mean, partly mm -hmm. it's through my eyes just because it's novel for me, but I mean, my wife grew up in very similar circumstances to one of those um, buildings and she also kind of gets that um, more than I do in some ways. So that's a, a different kind of authenticity, I suppose. It is. It is. But then, and then we dive into the notion of tourism. I mean, I guess not, of, not a lot of people travel to see these things. I mean, there are people. I'm not denying that, definitely. Like yourself. <laughs> And uh, but it's not the major. It's not. Perhaps I could say that it's not how tourism is sold, or uh, what idea about tourism we have. If you understand what I mean, you know, like there are like places where you travel to see this. Let's say ex-Soviet. I perfectly imagine because I lived in one of those. Blocks, but as you say, it was made for practical reasons. But it's I'm more interested in like how you, with tourism. I think it's more like we seek for those historical sites, you know, like so so a bit. Um, I'm sure there is a niche for people who are sick there, but I I don't think it's a big one. Oh, for sure, there's someone that um has appeared on. Intrepid times before Diamond Richter. He's a author and photographer. He runs, uh, I think it's called X Utopia, his company, and he takes people on tours of these, not necessarily these these blocks, but these great brutalist mm -hmm. communist statues that are still litter the landscape um, across Bulgaria, across former Eastern Bloc countries. He used to take people into, obviously, before the war, he used to take people into Ukraine, into the uh, Chernobyl exclusion zone and that was a hugely popular tourist attraction um, it's kind of I suppose a little bit self-aware a little bit ironic but there is also something compelling about that story I mean people are attracted when when people go do tourism I suppose there, there are a few motivations one is you, you spoke before of the poolside hotel with the open bar and that, that sounds amazing Right now, um, the the other is just the you know classic beauty, whether it's an old square, whether it's a mountain. Like that's, I, I find that it gets your emotions in a very similar way. And and the other is to feel part of a story, is to connect to something bigger than you. And it's often history being history. Those stories are great and terrible things, you know, wars and tragedies or bananas systems. But you you feel connected to something. Um, 
and grateful to perhaps have not been part of it, but to to learn more about where we all come from. Do you think we learn from history? Yeah, I, not as well as we should, I suppose. I mean, I, I studied history at university. That, that was my subject, and I'm still... Wolf, every time I, we spoke about Armenia before, and every time I visit a new place, I'm still just like astonished by how little I know. I, I find actually, funnily enough, this um, my European friends, particularly my Polish friends, I'm sure you too, know far more than me about pretty much everything to do with history. Even though I have, a, even though it's what I studied, and it's not the same for for most of the, for my friends. I, I guess history education in New Zealand was woeful, probably because we don't have a lot of it. But the the uh, amount here, the, the amount of stories is is staggering. So yes, I, I do think we learn from history. I also think we're very easily tricked by it. I mean, the, history is the distillation of events into stories and narratives, and often the people telling those stories have an agenda. And often the stories mm -hmm. that we find the most compelling that resonate with us aren't the ones that are actually true. So. Yes, we are informed by it, but we're, we're also often misinformed. Like winners write the history, isn't? And I was really lucky in the sense that uh, my great grandmother, uh, she told me some stories about her experience of um, uh, Lithuania between the two world wars her experience of the world war second world war and then soviet times and then the, the dependence of lithuania so it was very interesting to to to, to hear those stories not to not to read the book but just to hear those stories you know personal experiences of of unimaginable actually unless you go through them and probably half of Half of truth she did not tell me. Anyway, <laughs> you know it's. But it was as you say. You read one thing and it's just black and white. And when a person tells you something, there is a bit more of. There is emotion in it. There is, of course, there is certain. Thought angle in it, how that person perceived it. But still, then you can. I think when I spoke at the beginning, you know, you get a bit broader picture. I mean that. The war was hell for everyone. Well, for the, I would say 80% of Europeans was hell. You, in the way how you put it, you know, it was horrible. And just to listen to those stories, I think it, it's really like just, you get the deeper grasp of why we should strive to avoid war and, you know, and kind of conflict. What an incredible time that your grandmother must have lived through. I mean, Lithuania is also a country, even though it's right on the Polish border, that I haven't been to and don't know a lot about. Vil Vilna features very heavily in Polish literature. Um, a lot of the most famous Polish authors uh, from there. I think your, your histories and Polish histories are intertwined. We, had, uh, we have, there is a, actually quite interesting uh, podcast. It's uh, BBC In Our Times. I don't know if you heard about it. Have you heard about it? Yeah, I, I know of the podcast, so I've made so, listened to one or two episodes. So, so there is a the, there is one podcast I will send it to you. There is the Commonwealth of Lithuania and Poland, where one country for 
more than 200 years, roughly in that amount of time. It's amazing. Yeah, please do send me that. I'd love to. I will send it to, to you. To so we're re- we are connected. We are. We have a lot of in common, and uh, even with Latvians, you know, it's like also, although in the current context, it's dangerous to speak like that. But we also have co- common things with Russians, obviously, because we're part of the Russian Empire, and naturally, the, the cultures mix. You want it or you don't want it. People travel, people settle down, families, and then you know, Soviet Union, same. Same thing. I mean, you like it or you don't like it. You cannot escape, like from the traditional dishes. They're like, are they truly traditional dishes, or is just a, just a mixture of? Because when you go to East Europe, there, I, I say, oh, this is Lithuanian traditional dish, and then like my Hungarian colleague says, ah, we have it as well, or they're like, Latvian, oh, we have it as well, Polish, we have it, Czech, we have it as well. So, you know, it's what is truly, again, what is truly authentic when we're, especially in Europe, we're so, you know, uh, mixed. Also, if I may ask about like New Zealand, what's like really true authentic, like when you talk about New Zealand, what is truly authentic? If you spoke about traditional, then you go to indigenous people, like before the, before the um, settlers arrive okay but then after the settlers arrive what happens then the culture so you have some you have a new identity and which is very interesting you know it's the same with america the same with australia the same with all these countries where white settlers came in and then they become this forced <laughs> uh mixture of, of of cultures and something new and interesting emerged and i think it's yeah. still on the way at least how I see America, it's still, you know, there's always a lot of pain and, and anger and, and distress about the past. Yeah, in, in New Zealand and Australia, this relationship between the the British settlers or colonialists and the indigenous people, the Aboriginals in Australia and the Maori in New Zealand are, are both currently highly active political topics like this huge debate raging around them right now so in australia there is this referendum on the voice which refers to aboriginal you know representation and involvement in the legal process and in new zealand we have an election in a couple of weeks and the um the treaty this was the the law i don't want to get too into the weeds but it was the law uh, the agreement signed between the british crown and the maori tribes in the 19th mm-hmm. century our relationship with that and the implications of it and Maori representation in parliament and Maori political and legal issues like these are hot button things that are being debated actively every day in parliament in these countries right now so it's it's quite fascinating I mean these are very young countries in terms of like in the modern sense Australian aboriginals have been there for tens of thousands of years but Australia is a modern state is extremely young as is New Zealand compared to any any European country. That's true. So, Nathan, how did your journey as a writer begin? Yeah, I suppose um, there are two sides of that. The, the being a writer is like kind of like your identity, and being a writer is like your profession. 
the first mm-hmm. part just sort of seemed to be baked in like it was just always just something I felt drawn to like even as a kid in school I would write the longest story you know or and I would write little short stories at home and it was just always I don't know why some people feel compelled to do this some people draw some people play football some people write it was just always there and then as a profession it was when I found myself in Shanghai China um, I was in my very early 20s and ran out of traveling money and needed to find a way to make some and thought I had a ability as a writer um, I had some experience with online marketing when I was at university so I put the two and two together and just put myself out there as a copywriter and I think that my first gig was writing blogs for a China travel company so kind of almost travel writing but not quite but it, mm-hmm. it grew and, and snowballed from that so with the one hand I've been involved in the travel writing community both as a writer being published elsewhere and as an editor for intrepid times and with the other hand I've pursued this career as a you know professional communicator writing for publishers and and various others it's been it's been a lot of fun yeah I can see that you're shining <laughs> happy to hear it it's very interesting and when do you when do you felt or when did travel writing in particular kicked in of course started writing for Shanghai but when you kind of went to, or after that you started kind of went deeper and deeper and deeper or you still experimented with other, other kinds of uh, I don't know kinds of writing have you ever wrote poetry for example terrible poetry that I would never show anybody you why, know, why do you think it's terrible <laughs> truly truly awful I love reading poetry like it's one of the things that moves me the most but I I just don't think I would have the courage to write it or, or put it out there. I mean, it's just some, it's such an art and I don't really think of myself as an artist, but poetry is art. I think I'm more of just a utility person, like find a story translated into words. I think I'm more professionally, at least more of just a trying to get across a specific idea. I know poetry does that too, but travel writing is something I was drawn to from a fairly early age my my grandfather uh, in the UK gave me a number of books all of the classics you know from Paul Thoreau to Patrick Lee Fermer I have some books he's given me um, just like have around here actually yeah of course um, there's oh, this wonderful beautiful. British publisher called Eland this is one uh, grandfather got me and he, he includes in them the he reads the reviews in the paper and and gets them for me which is just wonderful he's been doing this for years and it's uh, i always read them um, if not always immediately and that was what gave me the the real connection to that because these were the books i felt so connected to and as, as you mentioned earlier in our conversation like so much of travel writing is that 10 great things to do here these listicles like this whole world of online publishing seo kind of did useful things but also did a lot of damage I think to the idea of that genre so within Trafford Times we're trying to both like be online be accessible be modern be in the Mm -hmm. world as it is now but also to reconnect a little bit with that tradition how did travel writing actually if you can talk about historically how it all began do you know how it all began and was it I suppose we how was it? It was written journals, I assume, when people just wrote journals when they traveled. That's, I guess. Yeah, we um, 
spoke to on, on Intrepid Times, my colleague Jennifer spoke to um, Tim Hannigan, the author of the Travel Writing Tribe, and he traces a little bit the history there. But one of the the earliest, uh, I suppose, I would say the earliest like known travel writer, certainly in the Western tradition, would be Herodotus. And he's would like many travel writers kind of do now in a different way. He'd go to strange lands and make money giving lectures and telling the stories. And that's, you know, as old as as literature. And then often travel writing has like the history of it has been bound up with the only people who could afford to travel, you know, for leisure back then, certainly in Britain, the the Etonian sort of aristocratic class. I think that yeah. is changing now quite quite self-consciously changing but it, it is opening up and, and we spoke earlier about how accessible travel now is which means travel writing is is more accessible which is great so more thought-provoking more different perspectives see the world through the eyes of someone who doesn't have your background so mm -hmm. that's there's there's been a a tradition which is being challenged and evolving which is probably a decent enough place to be do you think that uh, because everyone can write nowadays or blog, let's say, uh, do you think there is a danger that people, rather than looking at the content on or what they're writing, they're just working on a catchy title in order to gain, as you say, likes or clicks? I'm not saying that the content is per se bad, but it's just, you know, like kind of just made for a, just a person would click and just stroll over it, you know, not, nothing. Uh, do you think that that's also happening? Do you see that happening in, in travel writing? Oh, sure. I mean, it, it's a, been a problem with all forms of media and journalism. I and mean, whenever there's a cultural change, media and writing adapts and how writers do what writers need to do, which is tell true things but also get attention and build audiences to ways that these have evolved changed so like this whole clickbait idea and these seo ideas i mean they do not these incentives do not align with what requires of really good writing you know really good writing requires introspection and thought and to challenge ideas and to not conform necessarily to a narrative and to not pack keywords in the front paragraph. I mean, the, these incentives are not consistent with good writing. And that's why we at Intrepid Times ignore all of that, ignore mm. the SEO, ignore the clickbait and just publish good stuff. Um, I'm sure we'd get far more readers uh, if we played that game, though. So it's a tricky... Because like, you need to survive as play. well. You need to survive. Ironic. Yeah, exactly. Where do you search for inspiration? Considering that there's so much of travel writing, there are so many angles, where do you go, where do you, where is your muse hiding and where do you find her? <laughs> yeah, you, you tend to find her when you're not looking, I think. I mean, <laughs> I remember that nice. there was this, I was just, I shared this article I wrote a few years ago with a friend because it happened to dovetail with a conversation we were happening, which is why it's front of mind, but I, I mentioned Shanghai before and there was this kind of crazy experience I had there. I won't tell the story now, but it related to uh, essentially there was a bar on the outskirts of the city that a few of us expats would hang out in. But by day, it was just an ordinary noodle house that would look the same as every other 10,000 of them on the street. But by night, the owner gave the keys to someone else, um, an American, 
who pulled out the beer kegs and converted it to this completely just strange hangout place. And I would go there a few times when I was in Shanghai and I enjoyed how strange it was, but I never really thought about it until be about two years after leaving. I was in Madrid living there at the time and I went for a walk out around my district, nice quiet suburban part of Madrid and about halfway through the walk I suddenly the structure of a story about that place in Shanghai that I hadn't even thought about hit me and I just sort of rushed back to my apartment and got to the laptop and wrote it. I mean that's one way of doing it. That's the most fun way but it's not a career. Like You can't just rely on the lightning bolts to hit you. Sometimes you just have to sit at the desk and be like right I'm going to write a story and I'm not leaving the computer till I do and that works as well. So um, if you're lucky and inspiration strikes fantastic and if not you just you do the work. You threaten yourself. I'm going to sit exactly. until I write it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then you sit for two weeks. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, I've not left this chair in years. Um, <laughs> yeah. How did the line, how intrepid times came to life? How did? So originally it was conceived as kind of, I don't think I used the word podcast, although there, there were podcasts back then, we're not that old, but it was just a way that I would read a wonderful travel book, uh, Peter Hessler or Glenn Kurtz, and I would want to reach and interview the author. And you need to have a platform in order to do that. And as mm -hmm. I'm sure you've learned through your um, podcast too, Looking at the Sky, that um, people tend to be very generous with their time. I was astonished by how who said yes and then we were publishing some stories and we started to get more and more submissions I think one day it just sort of took off I think someone posted about us on a forum or something and then from that day onwards this is going back half a decade or so we've never had a shortage of material we've published one story per week that's what we do um, when we have the budget we'll increase that one story a week we always pay all of our writers that was a decision wow. we made early um, yeah, that was important for us to do. Um, even though we've, we, you know, having the budget to do that is not easy. It makes it quite a different category of thing. Like this is something that we we honor the writers for contributing to us. We're grateful for them. Um, no one could make a living off writing for Intrepid Times, um, nor indeed editing it. But they writing deserves to be rewarded and honored and I think it changes the relationship that we have with our authors in quite a good way yeah I had the question and it just ran away I was talking 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 ah I recall I it's really remarkable how people say yes and thank you Nathan also for saying yes I am I'm always astonished when you write to someone and people say, yeah, sure, no problem. <laughs> it was like... No, it's my pleasure. I'm always flattered to flattered to be asked. And I, I love what you're doing here, having real real thought-provoking conversations and, and honest conversations. I've, I've really Thank enjoyed you. it. Actually, you know, I can share with you how I thought about this podcast. I was walking with my friend into in the forest and we were talking, talking, and I said, wow, I would like to record this. <laughs> and he said, perhaps a podcast. Yeah, I said, why not? And then they came back to Malta and they simply started without 
more or less knowing what to do and how to do. And I just, at the beginning, I invited my friend, you know, like uh, who I know, and I kind of wanted to see how I feel. And he, it was a really fun test. I really enjoyed it. And then one after the other, it was like uh, the last person which I interviewed, it was from South Africa. They have this um, channel called Green Renaissance, where they basically talk with random people. He was recently in Singapore, or recently, like three months in Singapore. And he did that as well, like different kinds of videos. And the videos are short, and what I like about the idea that they want to unify, you know, they don't talk about, or not, neither they ask um, questions which polarize people. You know, they ask for something like, and more deepful questions like love, anger, hate. You know, all those eternal questions, if you go back to ancient Greeks, they spoke about it. Then you come back to the Romans, they spoke about it. You come to Shakespeare, he speaks about it. And I think uh, that, that was, too, I was I was really honored, as with you, as with all the people who agreed. It's truly, it's truly, truly amazing. And then you mentioned another thing about editing. And I would like to ask you, what is the biggest challenge of being an editor? Yeah, well, I'm going to have to go back and listen to that podcast you mentioned. And just to caveat, I do unfortunately have a hard stop at 10. There's another appointment I need to make. Um, just um, family back home in New Zealand, actually. There, it's no been problem. I can't reschedule it. So I've I've enjoyed this. I think we've covered a lot of ground. But yeah, let let me do my best to answer the editing question. And editing is tricky because you have to be subjective, like res be honest. You acknowledge that it's subjective. You are someone who is you're not an algorithm assigning points for different things. You know, we don't have a um, a scorecard or something but you also need to be consistent so how do you apply a consistent and coherent standard acknowledging that you're a subjective consumer of, of this material and having a partner to do this with um, if Jennifer Roberts who, who I mentioned earlier who came on board four or five years ago and really just elevated us to a different level that really helps like because we have we're both travel writers um, we're both great lovers of the genre and we have similar but slightly different tastes and through the interplay of our conversations we always arrive at I think much better judgments um, than either of us would or certainly than I would have um, arrived at alone and what's the biggest reward for you personally you know so my family is um, on my father's side a like a family of book publishers going back a few generations. So I think editing is in the blood to a degree. And, and my grandfather, David St. John Thomas, who was a publisher and author in the UK, he used to say the best thing about being a publisher is you get to read books that no one else ever will. And, and in, a, in a way, that's one of the great things about being an editor too. So we recently, we, we hold regular travel writing competitions and we can only choose four winners of this competition. One winner, a few runners up, partly because we just can't afford to pay, you know, the, all the hundreds of people who entered the, the reward. And also there's only a limited amount of time and attention that our audience has, so we have to filter. But many of the stories that were, you know, completely unpublishable because of techniques about writing, because of 
structure because of just the the skill or the story or for for many reasons that no editor would no editor would would publish them they were still deeply rewarding in a way to read um and you you see into people's lives in, in a in a certain way and you gain a lot from that and you appreciate it so i mean i hope people know that if they send their stories even if they're not selected and published they are they are valued they're not just going into a into a black hole well that's a very good thing to know okay <laughs> then the, 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 the last question then and then uh considering how much you have seen how much you have traveled what would be the unifying thing of humanity yeah that's um i suppose in a good way it would be let me put it this way i was in a bus like a, a mashrutka like a little public van going from Valadzor, which is Armenia's third biggest city, to Tbilisi. And I was with a friend of mine who's Dutch. Um, and the other people, we were the only kind of quote unquote Westerners um, there. The others were Armenian, were Iranian, were Kyrgyzstani. Um, we didn't have a common language. Um, but when the music came on, we all knew the same songs in various languages and, and started to sing. So music i suppose it's front of mind because we just had our soundtrack of travel competition but music is definitely something there and and another thing is hospitality i mean it doesn't matter where you go i mean maybe not like the center of london but any anywhere you're traveling people want to make guests comfortable and want to share something their tradition even though their tradition may be the same as the next country's tradition but they want to share that share that with people and they get delighted um to do so and so as a traveler that is just such a wonderful thing to rely on and people myself and many others people are always surprised you know even if you go to um iran is a classic example of one of the most hospitable places in the world even though it's made painted in the western media to be this you know, terrifying bloodthirsty state it's the kindest people you ever meet there and that's that's true of everywhere i've been um more or less and it's something that i hear over and over again from other people as well well, Nathan, thank you very much. It was a pleasure, and I hope actually to talk with you again. I think this would be just part one, if you don't mind, because the fly, the time flies with you, and I really enjoy talking with you. You're such an interesting and incredible person. I would like to wish you to continue being curious and thought-provoking writer and a human being who never rests and uh, discovers new places and shares those new places also allows other to share their experiences i think it's incredible and uh, best of luck thank you Matas. it was my pleasure and i hope in our next conversation i can learn a little bit more about your story i'd, I'd love to learn about your journey and and exchange some some questions the other way as well